Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's great to see everyone. I want to welcome our visitors and let you know that we have a meal after every service. And so today we will have a meal. Father, our prayer is exactly what we have. We need you. We, every one of us, need you desperately. We need you for our physical life, and we need you for our spiritual life. And right now, as a body of people who are your family, your sons and daughters, we appeal to you collectively and say, Lord, come to us and meet our need. Come to us and speak powerfully to our hearts. Come to us and change us transform us. Come to us now, Lord, and and don't allow us to remain in states of unrepentance or in states of callousness or in judgmentalism or in self-righteousness. Lord, come and unblind our eyes and come peel away the callousness from our hearts so that we can see your glory and your praise and your honor and your prestige and that we may be like Isaiah and that we may be transformed as we look at ourselves in light of who you are. Father, we're desperate for you. And we ask that you will come and meet our need in this hour for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, as we walk through our series titled, He Is. It's a study of the person of Jesus in the Gospel of John. What John is teaching us is that Jesus is the Word of God. That He is the eternal Son of God who has broken into human history. And he is responsible of creating and sustaining the universe, but at the very same time, he has come into his universe, and he has become a man. And in becoming a man, listen, he is revealing God to us. When the Bible calls Jesus the Word of God, what it is saying is that it is the self-revelation of God, that Jesus is revealing who God is and what God does and who God loves and what God is about so that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God. And when we hear Jesus, we are hearing God. And so what we're learning is that he is the word of God. And what we're learning is that he's the lamb of God. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And and what we understand about Jesus is that breaking into human history, he lives the life that we're supposed to live and then dies the death that we deserve and rises from the dead to defeat hell and death and sin and all of Satan's minions and Satan himself so that if we put our trust in this precious lamb, we can have life eternal. He's the lamb of God. He's the son of man. Jesus says at the end of chapter 1, he says, you will see the Son of Man. 
And you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what he's saying is, I am the King. I am the promised Messiah, and I will rule and reign on my throne forever, and you must give your life to me to have eternal life. And in chapter 2, we see that Jesus is better. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than the, the, the ritualistic ways of Judaism. And we see that very clearly because when the people need wine for the wedding, he turns water into wine. And he shows his godness, he shows his deity, he shows his power, he shows his love, he shows his infinite ability to provide everything that people need at any given moment. He's better. And then last week as we looked at verses 13 through 22, we said, he's the temple. He is the temple. If you just kind of scan down at that passage, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple. He walked in at the Passover feast and he saw all of these animals, dirty animals, whether it would be sheep or oxen or pigeons or whatever, inside the temple, a place of worship, a holy place where the presence of God dwelt in the most holy place. And Jesus, in his holy passion, cleanses the temple and makes a whip of cords and he overturns the money changers and he gets everyone out of there because he says, my house, my father's house is not a house of trade, but it is a house of worship and it will be treated as such. Jesus has a passion for holy worship. And then they say, well, show us something. How, how should we believe you? He said, well, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And, of course, the disciples later understood that he was talking about his own temple. He, he is the temple. And this was Jesus' way, and it was John's way as he wrote about it, to show that the temple mount in Jerusalem was becoming obsolete because Jesus Christ was becoming the ultimate place of worship. And if you want to worship God in holiness and in purity and you want to see his glory, then don't go to Jerusalem, but go to Jesus because he's the temple. He's the temple. And that leads us to do two things. I believe John would say two things that we need to do is we need to reverence the holiness of God. Church, we have, we have our culture to blame. We have evangelicalism to blame. We have our our, our, the, the, the contemporary day and times in which we live, which everything is so casual, and more than anything else, we have our hearts to blame. We don't reverence God the way we should reverence God. We don't think about worship the way we should think about worship. We, we casually come and go. We casually enter in and leave out. We don't prepare for it. We don't come to it. We don't um, put ourselves wholly into it. We're distracted by other things. Our minds are on other things. And, and Christ comes and he says, my father's house is a house of worship. Give him what he is due. But then at the very same time, he says, I'm the temple. And he says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And while we are to reverence the holiness of God, we are also to revel in the grace of God so that when we don't treat God the way that he should be treated, there's grace for that. When we don't live the kind of life that we should live, there's grace for that. When we use words that we shouldn't use, there's grace for that. 
when we have relationships that create um, in us anger and jealousy and animosity, there's grace for that if we go to the temple and we find ourselves in him and say, Lord, I need your grace. Would you help me? He is glad to help. That is the message of who Jesus is up to this passage we're in today. And that leads us right into verses 23, 24, and 25 of chapter 2. I want to read it for you and then explain it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is a very short passage. You might think, well, maybe we should just join it with the next passage so that we can get a little bit more of the revelation. And in fact, this passage is a transitional passage to lead us right into chapter 3 and chapter 4. Because if you look down at chapter 3, verse 1, notice that John said, Now there was a, what? A man. Which is following up on what he's just said, that Jesus knew what was in, what? Man. So this passage is a transitional passage for us to see who man is, what man is about, what man's needs are, because we're about to see a male man in Nicodemus, and then in chapter 4, we're going to see a, a human, a woman, the Samaritan woman, whom Jesus is also going to interact with. That's what this passage is doing. It is setting the table for us to see Nick and to see Sam so that we can understand what is in man. All right, now, now let's look at verse 23 because this is the first portion of the, the outline of, of the text. It's the fickle faith of the multitudes. The fickle faith of the multitudes. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Last week we saw it's Passover time. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover is a 24-hour period where the people of Israel come and they offer up their lambs and they revel in the grace of the provision of God. But then the next week is joined with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that it's all considered the same thing, so that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have flocked to Jerusalem during this time and they are celebrating their religion. They're celebrating their God. And John is saying when Jesus was in Jerusalem during this celebration time, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, what we know is that at the end of John's gospel, John says about Jesus that if, if it were recorded how many signs and miracles and wonderful things that Jesus did during his ministry all the books in the entire world could not contain it. So if you think about that week in which Jesus was doing ministry in Jerusalem during Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's doing miracles. He's, what, what, what do we see Jesus doing in the Gospels? We see him healing 
sick people. We see him making paralyzed people walk. We see him making blind people see. Deaf people hear. Unclean people clean. We see him doing all kinds of incredible signs that he is from God. He has the power of God. He has the authority of God. And people are no doubt during this time flocking to him and they are seeing him. I remember going when I was about 13 years old to watch a David Copperfield show at the Birmingham Civic Center. Y'all remember David Copperfield? I don't know if he still does his deal. But man, people packed out that place. And David Copperfield did all of these illusions. And, they, and, and, and we were in, wow, wow, can you believe that? And, and he got into this tank. And, and uh, here he was in this tank. And, and then they draped this kind of curtain uh, or, or, or sheet over the entire tank. And all of a sudden, about five minutes later, they pull it off. And it's suspended in air. And David Copperfield is not in that tank. He ends up walking right behind me down an aisle. Like, where did David Copperfield come? Like that, it was incredible. And after the show, you better believe that I lined up to get an autograph for David Copperfield. Now, this is what you need to know. That's the way Jesus was being treated in Jerusalem during the week of the Passover feast. Can you believe what this guy's doing? Can you believe the signs he is performing? Can you believe that this blind person now sees and this deaf person now hears and this unclean person can now worship in the temple because they're no longer unclean? This is amazing. Everybody, let's go watch this awesome show. That is the nature of things in Jerusalem during the Passover week. And the text in verse 23 says, Many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. But what we need to understand is the nature of their belief and the motive of their belief. You see, they did not believe in him because he says, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. I'm the king of glory. I am God the Son and the Son of God, and he who believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. No, they believed in him. The motive of their belief was the signs that he performed. And the content of their belief was therefore on the level of their motive. If you understand that statement, the content of their belief was on the level of their motive. They wanted to see stuff. They wanted to behold stuff. They wanted to experience stuff that was awesome. It was on the level of belief that I had in David Copperfield. Like, if if Copperfield took one of his assistants and, and basically chained her to a cork wall, and he took those knives and threw the knives at the cork wall as she was spinning around, as we've seen that kind of thing before. Wham, wham, and never hit her. But then he asked me in the crowd, hey, yes, sir, would you like to come and be suspended on the cork wall so that I can throw knives and show who I am? Do you think I would have volunteered? There is no way in the world I would have volunteered. 
But I believed in David Copperfield. I watched what he did there. I saw how he got out of that tank, and wow, that, that's something else. I believed in David Copperfield, but I wasn't willing to give my life and put it in his hands with a, a bunch of knives, right? Okay, the level of belief that these people had in Jesus was they were in awe of what he could do, but they weren't willing to put their life in his hands. That's the nature of their belief. They believe because of and for the powerful signs. That's why we call it the fickle faith of the multitudes. Now let's look at verse 24 and 25 because now we'll see the divine discernment of the Messiah. You got the fickle faith of the multitudes. Now we got the divine discernment of the Messiah. And this is where we get our title for today's message. He is discerning. Discernment means to be able to judge right from wrong, good from bad, to be able to comprehend and understand reality. And that's what Jesus has. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. Church, what would be good for you to know is that the exact same verb is used in verse 23 about their belief in Jesus and Jesus' non-belief in them. For you Greek scholars, it's the word pistuo. Pistuo. They, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. They entrusted themselves to him, but he would not entrust himself to them. They had trust in him, but he did not have trust in them is what John is getting, getting across. Well, isn't that interesting? But Jesus' response here is a resistance to them. He didn't entrust himself to them. Church, why did Jesus not entrust himself to all of these people who were believing in him? They knew what was, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was going on in their hearts. He didn't need anybody to tell him about them because he knew exactly what was in them. It made me ask the question this week. What is in man? What is in man? And God has not left us in the dark. Like we, we can... Read that passage, and it says that Jesus knew what was in man. And we don't have to leave scratching our heads like, well, I wish I knew what was in man. I wish I had any kind of clue what was in man, but I have no idea what is in man because God hasn't shown us what's in man. No, he's shown us. For you note takers, you can scribble down or you can just listen to this. But, but and when I ask the question, what is in man? This is what God has revealed. Man is full of a deceitful heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay. The word deceitful means fraudulent. I have a coach that I minister to, and I was asking him about a player uh, one time, and he said, well, coach, I'll be honest, he, he, he's fraudulent. He's fraudulent. He appears to be something in front of his coaches and his teachers, but in reality, he's somebody totally different when he's around his peers. Okay, fraudulence, deceit means 
you think you're something that you're really not. It's a duplicity about yourself. You, you've got these thoughts about I'm good, I'm great, I'm holy, I'm this, I'm that, but in reality, you're not good, you're not great, you're not holy, you're a fraud. And the Lord says that the heart is deceitful, it is fraudulent to its very core. What's in man? A self-centered mentality. Reading through the, the Sermon on the Mount this this week, and Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be, does anybody complete that sentence? In order to be what? Seen by them. Be careful about practicing all your religious deeds in order to be seen by men. Because you're not going to have a reward, Jesus says. And this is the truth, church, that what is in man is this concept of, of building the kingdom of me. Building the kingdom of me. We have a me-centeredness, a self-centeredness that is innate in our humanity. A self-centered mentality. We have a sinful nature. You know, Psalm 51, Psalm 51, 5, Jesus, uh, David confesses. He says, surely I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And David is not saying that my mother was an adulterer. He's saying that even in my very nature, from the very point of my conception, I am a sinner. I have a sinful nature. And church, this is very important for us to understand about humanity, is that we're not sinners simply because we sin. We're sinners because that's who we are. That's the core of our being. When Adam and Eve decided to listen to the serpent, they basically had three questions that were asked, and they answered them the wrong way every time. And I, like Satan approaches them and says, what is true? Well, what was true is they didn't need to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan says, no, that's not true. And, and Satan says, well, what, you know, what is right? And, and they're, they're like, well, we, God said it, so we, you know, we need to do what's right because he's right. No. That's not right. He knows that if you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And not only that, the third question they, they asked and answered wrongly was, who am I? Who am I? And they answered it wrongly. In reality, the truth is, is that they were created by God and for God and unto his glory, but they answered it, I want to be God and I want to have glory. And because of that, Adam and Eve sinned, fell, duped by Satan, fell into sin. And listen, you and I have an utterly sinful DNA. To our core, we are sinful. We don't just make some mistakes. We don't just make a couple of bad decisions here or there. Or we don't say a couple of things and we go back to the person we said them to. Ah, I didn't really mean that. Yes, you did mean it. That's why you said it. Because you are sinful. We have a sinful nature, an unholy nature. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God in the temple and the train of his robe fills it. There is smoke everywhere, angels around. And Isaiah, who's a good man, he's a faithful man, his response is, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen what? The glory of God, the glory of God. 
And Isaiah knew what you and I need to know is that we are unholy in our constitution. We are not holy people. We have a self-dependent spirit. Maybe some of us more than others, but in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. I, uh, I think I have been experienced this over the last couple of years. There have been some, some brokenness to my own body. My knees are really struggling. You guys know that I had a bout with sickness for about three or four months last year. And, and I will tell you, what the Lord has exposed in my sickness and in my joints is that I have often relied on my strength and my health and, and, and what I can do more than relying on him. And God is using this to show me that I need him for everything. We have a lustful will. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, this is the thing about our human nature is that we crave things that don't belong to us. We crave things that aren't for us. We crave things that aren't good for us, but we think they're good for us, so we go after them. And so when we go after them, we think we're thinking logically, but we're thinking illogically because when we go after things that aren't for us and aren't good for us, we are essentially telling God, you don't know what you're talking about. We have a vengeful spirit. We, we want to take an eye for an eye. Jesus says, listen, when somebody hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. He says, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Man, as much as we love the concept of turning the other cheek and being slapped on it, and as much as we love the concept of doing good to another person who is doing bad to us, we have this thing in our hearts that rises up and we want to get even. We want to make things right. We have a vengeful spirit. We have a greedy mindset. In the Sermon on the Mat. Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But our mentality, it is, it is in our DNA to get all we can, can all we get, sit on the lid so nobody can have it. That's who we are as people. We have a judgmental spirit. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, it will be measured to you. Why do you get, see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your own eye, when there you have a log in your own eye? This is just a fact. Even in our redeemed state, we often look at other people and say, he's not doing enough. He's not leading good enough. She's not being loving enough. They're not being caring enough. Those people aren't compassionate enough. Those people aren't thoughtful enough. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. It's her fault. But it's not looking in the mirror and say, what is wrong with me? 
That's who we are. We have a judgmental spirit. We are unwilling to look in the mirror, but we are more than glad to look out the window at everybody else and all of their faults. That's who we are. We have a defiled heart. Listen to Jesus. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It is the dreadful, terrible condition of man that we are sinful to our very core. And if we don't admit it, if we don't confess it, and we don't say, yeah, that, that's actually me, then we're demonstrating the very truth that I'm teaching you right now. So look at the text. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He himself knew what was in man. And yet, church, and yet, in all of our sinful nature, our judgmental spirit, our self-centered, build the kingdom of me, deceitful heart, rebellious spirit selves, Jesus comes to planet earth and he demonstrates his glory, he performs signs, he conducts miracles, he speaks the truth, he lives perfectly, he dies sacrificially, he is buried, he is raised from the dead, and he says, and he who believes on me will have everlasting life. That's the love of Jesus Christ for people who are as dreadful as me and you. It is utterly baffling. How can we be so sinful and so terrible and so rebellious against His grace and yet He says, I'm coming after you. I am the hound of heaven and I'm going to take on human flesh and I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to change your mind. I'm going to change everything that you're living for so that I can transform you from this dreadful creature to this beautiful creature and I'm going to clothe you with the beauty of my own glory. Praise the Father's name. And so, the big idea of the text, as we expand it out to what chapter 3 and chapter 4 are really going to be all about, is that, and if you want to write this down, you go for it, in the brokenness, in the brokenness of human depravity. Depravity is a three, $3 word that means brokenness, sinfulness, okay? Depravity, you are sinful. In the brokenness of human depravity, your heart is hardwired to crave. In the brokenness of human depravity, your heart is hardwired to crave. What do you crave? Check this out. Temporary thrills. External beauty. And personal glory. Temporary thrills. 
Like you, you just want to see signs. You want to, you want to see miracles. You, you, you want to shout, oh, that's awesome. I want to, I want to experience that. You, 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 want to, you want to get a check in the mail or, or, or you want to experience an unbelievable grace or a promotion at your job or, or a new car or, or, or some temporary thrill or a, or a trip to Disneyland or, or some other temporary thrill that will alleviate the, the commonness of your everyday life and propel you into something that you just think is better and sweeter and more awesome. You're all about temporary thrills and you're all about external beauty. You look in the mirror and you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm aging so I'm not as pretty as I used to be or I don't have near as much hair as I used to be. Oh, I'm, I'm depressed because of the way that I look. The reason you're depressed because of the way that you look is because you crave external beauty in it, w- w- to the dismissal of internal beauty. Personal glory. Like, we want glory. I recently participated in, a, in an event and I worked hard at it. And, and people um, were recognized for their hard work on that event. But I wasn't recognized for my hard work. And I got upset. I get upset with anybody else. I just am upset that I didn't get recognized. And why did I get upset? Because I didn't get recognized. Because there is still in the redeemed Ryan Limbaugh a desire for glory. To build the kingdom of Ryan Limbaugh and not Jesus Christ. And that dwells in you as well. And if we are unwilling to see that about ourselves, we'll never be able to reach the depths of the glory of God and the sweetness of His power in us because we will live at a very low ebb nature of our spiritual lives. God is calling us to something deeper and better than that. And so, this is part of the big idea. In the brokenness of human depravity, your heart is hardwired to crave temporary thrills, external beauty, and personal glory. Here's the second part of the big idea. But, but in the perfection of God's love, Jesus comes to bring you eternal joy, inner beauty, and God's glory. Those are just kind of like the reverse of the first part. He comes to bring you eternal joy. Like, there is nothing wrong with going to Disney World. There's nothing wrong with getting a check in the mail. There's nothing wrong with wanting a promotion and getting it. But if that's what you're living for, that is a ridiculous God. Because what Jesus is coming, and he's saying, I have come to bring you life and life to the full. And it's not just for the here and now. It is for forever. It is for infinity. If you put your trust in me, you will know a joy that is unwavering and unfaltering and eternal in nature. I'm going to bring you a beauty that you have never known. It doesn't matter what you see in the mirror because what is inside your heart is going to be my character, my nature. I'm taking out your heart of stone. I'm taking out your heart of fl- your heart of, of callousness. I'm, I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to put my heart in you so that your heart will literally beat now for my glory and that when I receive praise you will celebrate when I receive honor you will celebrate when I receive exaltation you will celebrate and you will know what living is all about at that point
In the brokenness of human depravity, your heart is hardwired to crave temporary thrills, external beauty, and personal glory. But in the perfection of God's love, Jesus comes to bring you eternal joy, inner beauty, and God's glory. So, what is the Holy Spirit calling us to do? So what he's calling us to do? Repent. That is the one application to today's message. Repent. Now repent in its most basic and biblical sense is to turn from sin and to Christ. To turn from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of Christ. From a me-centered concept of life to a God-centered concept of life and say, I don't want to have anything to do with building my kingdom and esteeming my glory and living for self anymore. I'm turning my back on that. I'm turning my face and my heart toward Christ and it's all about Him now. That, that's what repentance is. But I want to take you step by step right now so that you can understand what the process of repentance looks like. Okay, so this is how you repent. This is how you repent. Number one, you have to see your sin. You have to see it. So I was seeking to offer up some examples of how we build the kingdom of self and how we uh, are self-inclined. But right now, this is what I want to ask you to do. If you're, if you're somebody who wants to repent of your sin and not just be a sign seeker, but a savior seeker, then I want to ask you right now, in what ways are you sinful? In what ways do you think and do you crave that you know dishonor God? I want you to ask that yourself that question right now. I want you to see if, they, if you can see one sin in your life. Can you see it? If sin is breaking God's law in order to build the kingdom of self, in what way right now are you guilty of building your own kingdom? Can you see it right now? Are you willing to look for it? Take one right now that you see. I want you to see it for what it is. The second step of repentance is to agree with Jesus about it. Okay, so let's just say I'm greedy. I want to I take money and things and stuff and I want to have them for myself, and I don't want to give them out. I don't want to help others with it. I don't want to contribute to a, a mercy fund that we're going to contribute to later on today. I don't want to contribute to our, our pillar fund. I don't want to help my neighbor who I know is struggling and is having a hard time feeding their grandkids. I just I want to hold on to my money and my stuff and my deal because it makes me feel good. Okay, let's just say that's my sin. I see it. I'm greedy. I need to agree with Jesus that that 
is a sin that breaks God's law and grieve God's heart. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to set it aside. I'm going to say, Jesus, I agree with you that I'm greedy and that my greed is a sin. See it and agree with Jesus about it. Third, grieve it. This, this right here is where we fall off the wagon of repentance. Because we love our sin so much. And if we take greed, we love our money so much that even though we see it and even though we agree with it, our emotions don't get us to a place where we're sad about it. We're, we're, we'll admit that it's God's word and that greed is bad. But when it comes to struggling over the, the greed, we, we just don't go there. And so right now, I want to ask you, whatever your one sin is that I've asked you to identify, I want to ask you, would you just right now be willing to think about how that sin grieves the heart of God? Right now. How does the one sin that you've identified grieve the heart of God? Are you willing to grieve with God about your sin? Once you grieve, really the fourth part of repentance is to confess it audibly to God. You get alone with God, you sit in a chair on a Sunday morning, and you confess to God, God, I'm greedy. I love my stuff. I love my money. I am guilty of hoarding things for myself rather than contributing to your kingdom and your glory and your praise. I'm guilty. You confess it. Well, let me just even ask this. When is the last time you have confessed an individual sin to God. You named it by its biblical name and you said, I am guilty. So you see it, you agree with Jesus about it, you grieve it, you confess it, and then you ask for forgiveness. This is, this is where the turn is made from grief and struggle and even discouragement and, and you say, Lord, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. I'm greedy. Please forgive me. Take the blood of the Lamb of God and apply it to my greed. Take the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and cleanse me from my sins and wipe my greed as far as the east is from the west that I may know it no more, that I may feel it no more, that I don't, I don't experience the judgment for it, that I'm not condemned because of the rebellion of it. Take it away from me that I don't have to wear it anymore. I know you've accomplished that work on the cross. Now apply it to me right now that I may feel liberty from that sin. That's what it means to ask for forgiveness. And so then you turn. So if we're thinking, you see it, you agree with Jesus about it, you grieve it, you confess it, you ask for forgiveness, and then you turn. You literally turn from that sin. You turn from it. And so you've got this money, 
And so you, you say, you know what, I'm not going to put the lid on that money and that stuff, and I'm not going to put duct tape around it so that nobody can get it. I'm Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jerk the duct tape off of it. I'm going to unlock the lock, so I'm going to open up the canister, and whatever God asks for, I'm going to give, and whatever my neighbors need, I'm going to contribute because I'm literally, I am seriously turning from my sin of greed. And you trust Jesus in the midst of that. You see, the reason that I'm greedy here, the reason that I've got I've to just, I've got to stuff all the money and the treasures and the things into this canister and sit on that lid is because it is a demonstration of my lack of faith in the provision of Jesus. That's what it is. And so when I open up the canister and say, God, it's all yours, then what I'm saying is, is I no longer trust in myself, I trust in you. Let not the wise man trust in his wisdom or boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might or, or, or the rich man boast in his riches, thus saith the Lord. But let him who boasts, boast in me, for I am the Lord, full of steadfast love and judgment and righteousness, and in these things I delight, the Lord says. We've got to apply that personally to our lives. And then we've got to practice the put off and put on process. What do I mean by that? I think many of you probably know, but I'm, I'm not going to immediately and instantaneously go from a greedy person to a generous person. No. No, it's going to be a process because day after day and sometimes multiple times a day, I'm going to be thinking about myself. I'm going to be thinking about a, uh, a certain situation. And, and, and I'm going to say, I've got to, I've got to get more money for that or I've got to get more resources for that because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. No. And then at that moment, I've got to say, put off that lack of trust in Jesus and put on a real trust in the provision of Jesus so that I can walk by faith and not by sight. So that I can be more than a sign seeker, but a savior seeker. So that I can be more than a miracle seeker, but a Messiah seeker. I want Jesus to be my Messiah and not just on Sunday mornings, but in the entirety of of my life I'm going to put off that greed and I'm going to put on faith in Jesus and I'm going to walk even though it's scary even though I feel like I'm out on the ledge here because I don't know where my provision is going to come from tomorrow I'm going to trust in Christ because I know he's proven himself faithful practice the put off and put on process and I've got two more for you here underneath repent invite accountability invite accountability you know, one reason why I share with you that I struggled by not receiving some attention in contributing to an event is because I want you to know that I struggle. I'm not, I'm not above the fray. I'm in it. Okay? I'm inviting accountability to everybody in the church because I don't want to be self-deceived and I don't want to walk around with a prideful mindset saying it's okay we've got to invite accountability with one another we don't walk in and out of here on Sundays and say oh yeah everything's great you know I'll see you next Sunday we invite the accountability of our lives and then tenth fail forward f-a-i-l forward fail forward so often 
So we go back to the greed, and I, you know, I say, you know what? I'm not going to give to the church. I'm, I'm not going to give to this ministry. I'm not going to give to my neighbors. I was doing that for a while, but now I'm just not sure. Things, aren't, things are a little bit uh, sketchy right now. I think I'm going to start you know, just hoarding my money again. I'm going I'm I'm to get the lid on it again. And, and, and then I'll live that way for a week or two weeks or something like that. What I need to do is be confronted by my sin when I come to church, be willing to admit it and say, you know what, I failed in that area. I'm not going to fall back into an entire lifestyle of greed and live that way for months or even years. But I'm going to confess my greed. I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and I'm going to start becoming generous again. You know, that's what happens with our sin. It doesn't matter whether your sin is the lust of the flesh whether it is harshness toward your spouse, whether it's a callousness toward your children, whether it's a lack of service to the church of Jesus Christ or a lack of love for your neighbor, all of those things are things that we are guilty of that we need to fail forward. We need to confess, we need to repent, we need to turn, and we don't need to stay down in the mire of that. So just in case you were following that track, Repentance looks like seeing it, agreeing with Jesus about it, grieving it, confessing it, asking for forgiveness, turning from it, turning to Jesus, practicing the put-offs and put-ons, inviting accountability, and failing forward. And this is the most beautiful thing, church, is that Jesus knows you and he sees you. He looks into your heart and he is fully aware of who you are. The dirtiness, the nastiness, the selfishness, the greediness, the lustfulness. And he still says, I love you and I've given my life for you. I've died for that sin. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will absolutely give you rest. Let us, as a church, not be a people who are seeking signs. But let us be a people who find the Savior and put the entirety of our hope and our trust in Him as a person, in Him as a Savior, and in His as a God. For the glory of His name and not our own. Amen. Church, I want to ask you to stay with me right now. Because when Jesus cuts a new covenant, when he said there's a new world order for your life and your heart, we ask the question, does Jesus entrust himself to anyone? The answer is yes. Because about 40 Five days later, Jesus is resurrected from the dead after he initiates this whole celebration, this Lord's Supper. And he's walking along the beach with Peter. Peter, who didn't understand the kingdom of God, who blasphemed Jesus to his face, who cursed about Jesus in front of all of the people who were killing him, who denied him three times, And he comes to Jesus on the beach and he says, Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, Jesus. He says, he says, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my lambs. 
Jesus entrusts Himself to the Apostle Peter with His church because Jesus cut a new covenant with a man who was a denier, a blasphemer, a, re a recuser, a cusser, and somebody who rebelled against the kingdom of God to build the kingdom of self. Because that's the kind of Savior that Jesus is. And He will entrust Himself to you. And He will entrust His ministry to you as you put down your own kingdom and pick up the kingdom of God and say, I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God. Let's do that today. Let's do that this week that we may know the good hand of our great Savior. Amen.